All right, you guys can take a seat. Wow, what a time. Hey, can we give it up for our student-led worship team? Aren't they killing it? The black on black, they look awesome. So good, so good. Guys, how crazy. There was, there's four people who got baptized on Sunday that are on our worship team right now, which is so awesome. So praise Jesus. Hey, so good to be with you guys today. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Tony. Uh, I'm on staff here with this college ministry, and we're going to be continuing. Thank you very much. That's very kind. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of 1 John. So if you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to take it out. It's about 90% of the way through your Bible. If you don't have one, we'd love to gift you one for super free, okay? We want you to have it, take it home, use it, read it, do the things with it. We'd love for you to use it. Okay, so we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3 tonight. Next week, we're going to finish up 1 John 4, and then, guys, it's over. What sad, long year, so much fun. I know how sad, but it's going to be a great celebration, and, you know, it's going to get a little, you know, we might break the building. <laughs> Hopefully not. It's going to be great. Hey, if you're new here to Salt Company, I say this every week. Thank you so much for being here. We know that it takes a step of faith to step into an environment like this. I just want to say thank you so much. Hey, let me pray as we enter into our time together. Yeah, Father, I just, I feel weak tonight. I feel tired. Body's giving up on me, all that kind of stuff. That was not supposed to be funny. I'm sorry for that one. That one's to God. Okay, moving on. But Father, I do believe that in my weakness, your power is made perfect. That long before any of us were ever born, you wanted to teach us from 1 John chapter 3. Father, pray that the word would be made beautiful tonight, that salt company would get out of the way, that I would get out of the way, that anyone on stage would get out of the way. And what would be the most obvious thing as people leave here tonight is the beauty of Christ crucified. Father, we believe that tonight is a holy moment. Pray that you would move in a supernatural way. Pray that you would give me energy and strength. But ultimately, Lord, pray that the word of God would be made beautiful in our eyes. That we would see that the way of Christ is far better than the way of Cain. And we'd leave this place different. That we'd leave this place changed. Father, it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Here's how I want to start tonight. Think back with me to your most recent episode of Road Rage. Yes. Everyone's been there. You know, when you get mad and you feel justified for it. Yeah, that feels good, doesn't it? Okay. Let me set the stage for you. You're driving. Just living your best life, listening to some music. Wow, life's great. And then someone cuts you off, like so close you like could smell their bumper. You're like, what the frick? How did you do that? Now I want you to think about what you're thinking about that person, okay? Thoughts like, is this person serious right now? Don't they know who I am, right? You're like, I'm so busy getting to this place. How the heck do they have a driver's license? Take that away, like you have that authority. You're like, I'm gonna just take away their ability to drive. Horrible, right? No, thank you. Yeah, that, that's good. <laughs> that was good, okay. Least spiritual thing I think I'll ever say, but yes, very nice. Now, imagine this. Three minutes later, you miss your exit. And then you're like, I gotta make a side lane maneuver. <laughs> in other words, you cut someone else off, right? What do you think about you in that moment? You're like... <laughs> That was maybe the most logical thing I've ever done. <laughs> what a loser. Don't they know I'm a semi-pro race car driver? Guys, I drive a 2003 Toyota Matrix, and I feel like I am on the freaking NASCAR when I drive it. I'm like, ooh, ooh, whoa. Very small. 
it is literally older than some of you guys in this room. And that car is incredible. His name's Marty. Don't make fun of him. Did I thrift him? Maybe. I don't know. Okay. Moving on. He's vintage, right? You can't, you can't thrift cars. That's the joke, you know, because... Anyways, moving on. That is what we would call hypocrisy, right? This idea that you expect from others something that you wouldn't do. Okay, another definition that I have for hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another, right? Saying one thing and doing another. What does this have to do with our sermon tonight? I want to point out a cultural hypocrisy that I see in our city of St. Paul. And that's a hypocrisy where we as a culture say we love, but we actually do hatred. Let me explain. We say we love people who are different. Diversity, shout outs, I love it. (laughs) It's great. But then we cancel anyone who thinks something differently than we would think. Hypocrisy. We say we have a heart for the marginalized, people on the outsides of society, people who are poor and broken, and yet as a culture, we're unwilling to give up the margins in our bank accounts. Hypocrisy. We are a culture that cares far more about crypto, currency, for you hip financial people out there, hip of you, than we do the crippled of our society. We care far more about stocks than the starving. We're hypocrites. And maybe the last thing is, in our culture, we talk about unconditional love. We're homies forever, knit together. (laughs) But even as we engage in relationships with people, all of us unconsciously start putting clauses on the relationship. Fine print, right? We're friends as long as you don't do fill in the blank. Hypocrisy. The distance between what we say and what we do in Salt Company, that is not just a problem for our culture. That has been the historical problem for Christianity. You ask any person walking around on the streets of St. Paul why they wouldn't go to church, and they will almost never say anything about Jesus. Because Jesus, my friend, is very consistent, okay? Because he's God. Like, he can't, you know, he can't cut people off because he's God, right? But they will say what Gandhi would say, that I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Because for 2,000 years, Christians have said they love, but lived out hate. So if that's cultural hypocrisy and that's religious hypocrisy, the question for us tonight is how do we not hypocritically love? How do we not false love? How do we not surface level love? But how do we become people who genuinely love? Love out of the overflow of our hearts that Christ has loved us in. Here's how we do it. Okay, two ways, two parts. If you want to genuinely love, not be a hypocrite. (laughs) I don't want to be. Two things you need to know. You You need to be convicted by the way of Cain and you need to be changed by the way of Christ. Okay, open up your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to get started in verse 11. My voice is, like, so tired tonight, so we're going to, we got this. Okay, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 11 is the call to love one another, which is great. We're like, yes, love one another. Be genuine. Yes, love that. Verse 12 is like the anti-example, okay? So John's like, you want to love someone? Don't do what Cain did. Now, some of you guys are like, who the heck is Cain? Let me explain. 
I did not grow up in the church. Did not know who the Cain and Abel situation was, so let me explain. Genesis 4, this is what happens, right? The earth is created, oh, happy, Adam and Eve, in the garden, so happy, and then, oh, they fell into sin, boom, kicked out of the garden. Now, they're looking at a big, wide world, and they're like, oh, we should procreation nation. So they start making babies, pop them out. Cain and Abel are some of those babies, okay? Now, if you read too much into Genesis 4, you start asking questions like, how did Cain get a wife? And you're like, don't, don't ask me those questions, okay? I don't want to think about that. That's you and Google later. Whatever, it's fine. But anyways, Cain and Abel exist. They're homies. They're brothers, right? And then they get into a little bit of a conflict because here's what happens. Cain sacrifices produce, okay, like strawberries and asparagus because he was a farmer, to atone for his sins to God. Abel sacrifices a lamb. A little bit of foreshadowing. <laughs> you guys get it. And then here's what happens. God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's sacrifice. Now, this makes Cain pissed, okay? He hates that crap. Now, the question is why? Why would God accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain? Is it because God is on a high-protein diet? No, he did not eat the sacrifices, okay? Trick question. That's not why. Why did he accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? We don't know for sure, but in Hebrews 11, it says that Abel sacrificed by faith. And he, in 1 John 3, it says that Abel was a righteous man. Okay, so what's the first thing we learn in the Cain and Abel story? That God cares far more about the heart than the religious action. He cares far more about the condition of Abel's heart than what he sacrificed. See, this is not a story of if God accepted the sacrifice or not. This is a story of an evil heart in the heart of Cain. Pick up the story in Genesis 4. God says no to Cain and says yes to Abel. So what does Cain do? Cain becomes incredibly angry. And then in response to his anger, he takes Abel, his brother, out to a field. And the original Hebrew says he butchered him. He takes out a knife and slits the neck of Abel. And herein lies the first story in the Bible of murder. A violence that began to terrorize the human history story that would begin out of hatred and anger and would end in murder. Okay, why does this matter to us? Why is John talking about Cain and Abel here? Let's look back to verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's was righteous. Okay, I love when the Bible asks questions that you have. You know, because, you know, first time I read Cain and Abel, I was like, okay. Seems like a bit of an overreaction. Don't, don't you think? A little bit? Like God didn't like your white elephant present, you kill your brother. That seems a little bit extreme. Like wait another year, God's hard to get gifts for because you're like, what does he want? <laughs> no one knows. Seems like a little bit of an overreaction. Why was God not accepting Cain's sacrifice precedent for murder? And John's answer to that question of why did he murder him is actually incredibly insightful into the human condition. And he says, because his deeds were evil and his brothers was righteous. So in other words, here's what Cain found. That as he looked at the righteousness of Abel, exposed his own deeds and began to create a narrative in his own heart of comparison. Instead of seeing Abel's righteousness and celebrating it, having a, you know, bro who loves God, he actually began to resent it. He would compare his righteousness with Abel's righteousness, and that comparison would lead him into insecurity, where that insecurity would actually lead to anger. That anger would lead to hatred, and hatred would lead to murder. I want you to write this down, and I think it's incredibly important for you, that comparison 
is the root of a thousand sins. Comparison is the root of a thousand sins. Have you guys ever met someone where when you meet them, you're kind of mad because you're like, why did God spend 20 hours on you and 20 seconds on me? Like, have you ever had that moment? Okay, I feel like there's an unwritten rule in humanity where you can either, you got to pick these, right? You can be athletic, you can be attractive, you can be genius or godly, but it's like a pick two, like Panera, you know what I mean? Like, you get half a sandwich and a salad. You don't get to have both the sandwich and the salad. You get two. You get two. I had this moment when I met Jonathan Bunce. Maybe you guys know him. Maybe you know him. This is an honest reflection of my own soul. I met Jonathan Bunce. And immediately I knew he was athletic because the traps like came out of his t-shirt. I was like, what the heck is that? Why do you have no neck? It just goes straight down. And you're like, oh, frustrating. Knew he was athletic. And then he looks like Thor. You're like, what? Why are you two feet taller than me and two feet longer hair? It's like, it's so, and it looks so clean all the time. I'm like, you, you take great care of your hair. I'll be honest. I'll be honest. When I first met Jonathan Bunce, I, 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 I hoped he was dumb. I did. I just did. In my heart, I was like, there's no way. There's no way that someone is athletic and looks like Thor. Turns out he's a genius. He disciples me. He's in my D group, and then he disciples me. It's frustrating. He is. He's great. He's great. And then he's godly and humble, and he, like, hates that I'm doing this to him. It's just so frustrating. Why do I say this? Okay. That was hilarious. Okay, moving on. Why do I bring up my good friend Bunce? Here's why. When you meet really gifted people, here's what happens. They begin to become a mirror to your imperfections. They're tall. I'm short. Like, it's a pretty direct mirror. I'm like, oh, my gosh, don't. Why do I have to look up at you? Frustrating. Hate that. They're godly. You're sinful. They're athletic. You're unathletic. They're impressive. You suck. Here's what happens when you meet really impressive people. They become to become a mirror to your imperfections in your life. And here's what that comparison creates in you, a deep insecurity. Listen, here's what's crazy about insecurity. All of us are insecure, okay? But none of us would be if we didn't have each other. So it's just kind of like a whole thing. Like why, if we just lived in silo, like in a desert by yourself, you'd never be like, oh, I wish I was taller. You would never have that thought. You would never have that thought. But comparison is the root that leads to insecurity. And then here's what insecurity leads to. It leads to anger. Let me explain. It leads to anger because you're like, why the heck am I not more like that person? So you blame God. You blame God or like the universe, depending on your ideological framework coming in tonight. But you blame someone. And you look at them and say, why didn't you make me different than I actually am? Tim Keller defined anger like this. We get angry when we feel like God owes us a better life than we have. Which I was like, oh gosh, is that at me? Why'd you do that? We get angry at God because we look at our lives, we look at who we are, we see our insecurities, our inadequacies, our sin, and our brokenness, and we say, God, I deserve a better life than what I have right now. And that anger leads to hatred. Now here's what hatred is. Hatred is wishing someone didn't exist. Let me put in context, I actually love Bunce. I do not wish he did not exist. But, you know, someone else, right? Hatred is wishing that person didn't exist. And then here's what hatred leads. It leads to murder. Look at verse 15 with me. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, 
and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is a concept that John is extrapolating from Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And he says things like, if you've lusted, you're an adulterer. If you've hated someone, then you're a murderer. Both of which, by the way, had capital punishment. So if you hate someone, you murdered them, you deserve to die. Now, this might be a little bit extreme because you're like, okay, Tony, I can follow you all the way to the hatred part. But murder, like I've never murdered anyone. Good. I'm glad you haven't. Here's the thing. Imagine there are no sociological ramifications for murder. How many people would you have murdered by now? If hatred is wishing someone didn't exist because of your insecurities, your comparison, and your weaknesses, then murder is just pulling the trigger on your desires. So here we find ourselves in this place where all of us have hated people. In the words of Jesus and the words of God, we have murdered people. One interesting cultural insight that I thought of is our culture has actually found a way to murder people without receiving imprisonment. Here's how. It's actually by canceling them. Think about this. When you cancel someone, you wish they wouldn't exist, and then you wipe them off the face of the earth like they don't. So we live in a culture that says we love people, that we're super open to everyone in regards of what they believe, but the second they mess up, we have a no grace culture where we cancel them and in a sense murder them to wipe them off of the face of the earth. Okay, so why does this matter to us? Okay, why the heck do we need to look into the life of Cain so much? Here's why. Because if we wanna pursue a genuine style of love, we actually need to be able to say one thing about Cain, and that is that we're just like him. See, the story of Cain is not how could Cain kill Abel? That's not the correct response. The story of Cain is to say, I'm just like Cain. When I think about all the relationships I've had in my life, and I'm really honest, like kind of, you know, alone in the shower crying honest, you know what I mean? <laughs> really honest. I would say that the one word that describes them is not love. I would say it's actually comparison. And that comparison had led to a lot of insecurity. And for essentially my whole life, I've been an incredibly insecure person. I may have protruded some level of arrogance, but that arrogance was only meant to hide the insecurity in me because honestly, if I was real with myself, as I compared myself to everyone else, I didn't like who I was. And that insecurity led to a lot of anger, where I spent many nights being angry at God that he didn't make me different than I was. That anger, but here's the problem with anger, that Cain realized, you can be mad at God, but he's kind of hard to take out your anger on because he's like ethereal, you know? So that anger will spill over into every other relationship of your life. So I'll come to you. Maybe the reason why every relationship in your life has so much tension is because you're so angry about your imperfections and your insecurities, and you don't know where to place it, so you just put it on other people. See, Cain was angry because of his evilness and his wickedness, his insecurities and his inadequacies. So what does he do? He puts it upon Abel and kills him. Okay. If that's the way of Cain, okay, here's what we need to see. We need to see that we're not different than Cain. We're just like him. That we are enslaved to our comparison, our insecurities, our anger, and our hatred, and we need a way out. Look with me at verse 16. 
and changed by the way of Christ. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to also lay down our lives for the brothers. Okay, if the way of Cain is defined by comparison that leads to death, here's the way of Christ, love that leads to life. Okay, think about this. This is so cool. It is impossible to genuinely love others unless you know that you're genuinely loved. Okay? It is impossible to genuinely love others until you know that you are genuinely loved. Here's why. Because the reason why we have such a tendency to compare ourselves with other people and the reason why other people being great at things kills us is because who they are is an attack against our identity. It's not just them being good at crap. If they were just good at crap, you could be like, oh, that's awesome. That's not. They're good at crap, and then it makes you hate who you are. You cannot genuinely love others until you realize that you are genuinely loved. This is what John Piper said. We weren't meant to be somebody. We were meant to know somebody. Okay, here's the way of Cain in your life. Here's the way of culture. Here's the gospel message of culture. If you feel like your life has no meaning, you feel like your life has no point, you feel like your life has no reason, then the way to solve that ache in your life is to become somebody, to just become a little bit more athletic, become a little bit more beautiful, become a little bit more popular, build your brand just a little bit more, get a little bit more academic success, and the promise of culture is that you'll finally feel like you are somebody. Here's the problem. In the cultural comparison game that we play, there's always going to be someone a little bit more athletic, someone a little bit more attractive, someone who's achieved a little bit more than you. And so there is a real possibility that tonight in this room, there are hundreds of people that will spend their lives playing the comparison game to be enslaved to the comparison of us and others. So what do we need? We need something different than the comparison game. We need the gospel. Yes. It's good news. Here's what the gospel says. It's not about who you become. It's about who you know. It's about who you know that begins to change everything about your life. And it's about how you're loved by that begins to change the deep depths of your soul. Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus, in fact, did not come just to get you a get-out-of-hell-free card. He's much better than that. He did not just come to heal or seal your eternity. He came to reorder the disordered loves of your soul. He wants to give you what it looks like to live in freedom. Here's what comparison's going to do. You're always going to feel like you're just not quite good enough. That's just true. Listen, guys, even Jonathan Bunce, I'm sure at times, feels this way. I can't really imagine, but I, I just assume in my mind he feels this way at times. That there's always someone better. Always someone who's trying to convince you that you could be a little bit better and you could finally be somebody. But the gospel is this. It's that we were created not to be somebody impressive, but to know somebody who is impressive. So, as I call the worship band back up, how does the cross change us? Okay, From a Cain-like people to a Christ-like people. This is the climax of my sermon. I'm very excited about this. Here's how it changes us. It changes our comparison to celebration. Yes. Here's what happens. Here's what happens when you know that Christ loves you, that you are, right, like you are righteous in the eyes of God, that as he died for your sins, he washed you over with his blood and gave you complete worth and complete value. It means that you can look at, you know, our good friend Jonathan Bunce and say, you know what? I am so glad you're so godly and awesome. 
That's great. You actually get to celebrate other people because their success does not attack your identity. Does that make sense? Second implication. You go from being stuck in your insecurity to standing on your identity in Christ. Here's what you can do. You can be like, you know what? I am, in fact, really bad at most things in life. You can say that and mean it. You're like, ooh, I suck at most things in life. Here's what the gospel does. It doesn't actually change that reality. You still suck. But, but you don't care anymore because your identity is not in how good you are at certain things that culture says you are, but your identity is in Christ who bought you with his blood. So you actually don't have to become single-digit body fat to be loved. You don't actually have to be an impressive person. You get to just be like, you know what? My life's great, not because I'm good at things, but because a good God saved me. So I'm standing on my identity. This, this, you know, life crap, don't worry about it. Third thing it does, it changes our anger to trust. Here's what happens when Christ dies for your sins and you believe that. The anger you feel towards God, that your life is not what you wanted it to be, goes away because you realize that in Christ, you have far more than you deserve. So you have to walk around being like, oh my gosh, like, I deserve so much better. You can actually just be like, I, I don't. I don't, I don't deserve anything better. I've received the blood of Christ. I deserve far more than I could ever deserve. And the second thing that happens is you actually begin to trust God. Here's one of the kind of keys to unlock your past. You start to realize that every disadvantage you've ever had that's worldly is a gospel advantage, okay? Everything you've been through that has been incredibly painful and full of suffering becomes a gospel advantage because all of that suffering leads you to know Jesus intimately and leads you to have a testimony to tell about how God saved you out of your mess. So you can actually trust him. If God has used everything in your past and redeemed it for his glory, will he not also use everything in your present and everything in your future? Your anger turns to trust through the lens of the cross. Fourth thing, your hatred turns to love. Guys, when you're secure in Christ, you're like, I mean, I'll love you. Like, I don't, what else would I do with it? Like, I've been fully loved. Like, why don't I just give you some of it? It's easy. Your hatred turns to love. And the last thing is your murderous heart turns to self-sacrifice. What Jesus did was so different than Cain because Cain killed Abel for his own benefit, but Jesus died for your benefit, which means here's what you do. You say, you know what, Jesus, you've been so good to me, so I'm gonna self-sacrifice my life because of your goodness to me. Okay, here's how I wanna close our time together. Fast forward in Genesis chapter 4, there's this moment where Cain has killed Abel. And what John says is he killed him because he saw his righteousness. Here's the interesting thing about that. When Cain saw the righteousness of Abel, it revealed his own brokenness and sin. So Cain would kill Abel. And then God would ask him, where is Abel? And he would deny it. He would run away from God. Now any normal person, if you killed someone, denied it, and ran away would not be at all interested in that person, but God met him with an act of grace. Here's what we find in Genesis chapter four. It says that God would give him a mark called the mark of Cain to shield him from the imminent death of the people around him. So I'll come to you, if we're Cain in this story, here's what I want you to understand. You did not love Jesus because he was righteous. You killed Jesus because he was righteous. 
Think about why Jesus was on death row. Was it because of his unrighteousness? No. It was because his righteousness exposed the sin of everyone in that world. And they said, you know what? Let's not worship him. Let's crucify him. This is our story if you're a Christian. That you saw a righteous Christ, and instead of worshiping him, you killed him with your sin. You denied that you did it. You rejected and ran away from God. And here's what God did for you. He chased you down and gave you a mark of grace, not the mark of Cain, but the blood of Christ. That's the gospel. We do not run towards God, but it is God the Father who run towards us. We do not seek the righteous. We kill the righteous, and yet the righteous one was willing to die for one who would kill him because he's righteous. This is the gospel. None of us, if you're a Christian here, none of us wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus Christ came and got you. That is the good news of the gospel. And it's only when you taste this unmerited grace that you start to realize that life, life doesn't need to be compared with others. You don't need to sit in your insecurity. When you taste this unmerited grace, here's what he delivers for you. Unbelievable identity in Christ. Freedom that you cannot imagine. So here's what I want to do. I want to send you into a time of reflection as we enter back into worship. I want you to close your eyes and begin to ask yourself this question. Are your relationships marked more with comparison or compassion? Do you compare yourself with everyone in your life? Or are you giving the compassion of Christ? Do you feel convicted by Cain? And the second thing I want you to ask the Lord for is that he would move mightily through the cross in your life. That he would take comparison and make it celebration. That he would take insecurity and give you an identity. That he would take your hatred and give you love. And that he would take your murderous heart and give you self-sacrificial grace just begin to process. Lord, what does it look like to live a life that is not comparison-centered, but is cross-centered, and to see that the Lord of the universe has come down to get me? How can then I love one another? Let's spend the next few minutes reflecting.